Well, thanks again uh, for being here this morning. My longhorn cub did die a death last week, I know. So, yeah, uh, I'm taking up any sort of cup recommendations you may have. Uh, off the list are Mariner's Cups, sorry. Uh, Oklahoma, can't do the University of Oklahoma, sorry. So anything outside of that canon, like, bring it. Like, I, I welcome all suggestions. Mm. We're not in the same conference anymore, so it's kind of okay, but... Mm. Yeah, I may get a little Sharpie on. Uh, I want to tell you about something I got to do this week that was really fun. It's the summer, and so a friend of mine and I went swimming, open water swim, out at Cottage Lake. How many of you have been to Cottage Lake in Woodinville? Not too far, right? So here's kind of what it looked like when we showed up. Uh, Cottage Lake is great. It's a good-sized lake, but it's not so big as to be super scary. And so we went there to do an open water swim because this friend of mine is training for a triathlon. And I, I did triathlons uh, pre-children. <laughs> and it's fun and it's great. And the open water swim is a really great part of a lot of triathlons. And so what we were going to do is we were going to jump in, we were going to swim across the lake, kind of see how far we could go, and then swim back. Uh, and there was no, the, the end of this story is like, and then a fish came up. There was no, like, you know, sort of monumental thing. But it was a really cool moment because it was beautiful. It was early in the morning. There was still a little bit of mist on the water. Like, that still happens, which is really neat. There are already some uh, diligent fishermen and fisherwomen sitting in their lawn chairs, casting out lines, even at 6 in the morning. And so we get out on the water and we start to swim across this lake. And as I swim, a couple of things occurred to me. Uh, one, it's just amazing to live in a part of the world where we can do this. Like, it's just incredible to be able to get in the lake and go out there. And this is not far from my house, right? Like, this is just a wonderful thing. Um, secondly, we were swimming in wetsuits. I don't like swimming in a wetsuit. How many of you ever tried to, like, swim in a wetsuit? It's like just a difficult task, right? Because you have to sort of adjust how your body moves through the water. You're a little bit constricted by the thing. Um, so I wasn't really 100% comfortable in the wetsuit. And if you've ever been in Cottage Lake in the summertime, you're going, why were you wearing a wetsuit? Like, it's like a bathtub. Like, it's super warm. You really don't need it. But we were just, you know, being cautious. But my final thought kind of has something to do with what we're talking about with our sermon series starting today. My thought was, I'm not in charge out here on the water. I'm not in charge. If something goes sideways, if I get a cramp or if, if something happens, I'm in trouble. Like, this is a place where my ability to do something, to protect myself, to get out of trouble, it's extremely limited when I'm out on the water. Think about it. We're, we're land creatures. We're designed to use our feet, to walk around. We are not designed to thrive in the water. Nobody here has gills or fins that I'm aware of. The way God has designed us is for us to thrive in a particular way, and that way, for me, for us, is to be on land. The water is great, but it's not where we belong. The water limits my ability to do what I want to do. It limits my ability to sort of bring things about that I might need. If I get hungry when I'm out there swimming, well, I'm going to get hungry. Like, there's not much I can do about it. My will is limited. And I'm saying all this at the top because this is how we can relate to one of the most important topics in the scriptures. And that's what our sermon series is going to be about for the next couple of weeks. We're talking about the kingdom of God. The sermon series is called Encounters with Christ, and you want to put a subtitle under it. You could say facets or faces of the kingdom. Where we see a view of the kingdom is in the lives of the people that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. And the kingdom of God 
if you want to just do a quick definition with me, it's the range of God's effective will. You have a kingdom, I have a kingdom. It's the range of our effective will, where what we want to have done is done. And we'll talk more about what that means and like how you can contextualize this in your life. But if you think about it, when I was swimming out on the water, the range of my effective will was extremely limited. There's not a lot I could do besides swim or not swim. The range of, God effect, of God's effective will is unlimited. And yet he continually wants the people of God to proclaim the kingdom, to live into the values of the kingdom, to help people see that there's a different way of life and it's available right now. Many of us grew up with the understanding Jesus comes to save and to rescue and to bring us to heaven. Yes, that's true. That is unbelievably true. And yet, there's more to it than that. And the kingdom is the more to it. The kingdom is Jesus didn't come to rescue people. He came to give us a rescue mission to take part in his rescue mission, to help redeem and save and bring into right order the world that he loves so much. God's rule and reign is the primary thing that Jesus came to proclaim. He came to proclaim the kingdom. That's what the scripture says, the land I just read for us. He came to tell broken people that they could be healed, that their world that had been shattered for so long by violence, by sickness, by oppression, that that could be changed. And it doesn't have to be that way. He came to tell people who were living under Roman rule, Roman oppression, that they didn't have to live that way anymore. And it wasn't about overturning the oppressors as much as it was about living in the reality of the kingdom now. Living with that reality as part of our lives in this moment. So we're going to talk about how these people, these stories, show us a a view into the kingdom. When Jesus comes along, he automatically opens up door for us to understand the kingdom, drop into the kingdom, and we are changed. And so we're going to look at that through three different headings. These are in your bulletin if you want to follow along. They're context, contrast, and calling. Context, contrast, and calling. So let's set the context for today's passage. Where are we going with the book of Luke? And we're going to be in the book of Luke all throughout this sermon series. Uh, Guess who wrote the book of Luke? Anybody? Luke? Okay, great. Bonus points. You get an extra donut later on. Luke was the author of not just this book, but the book of Acts, so they're always kind of meant to be read in tandem. Luke was a physician. He was kind of an amateur historian, and so his goal was to write this gospel in such a way that it told the story of Jesus, but it told it in a way that would reach people who wouldn't have known Jesus from anyone. They wouldn't have had any familiarity with kind of uh, Jewish history or the nation of Israel or Yahweh or anything like that. He wrote it to reach his contemporaries, which were people who were part of the Roman Empire, who were familiar with sort of Greek Hellenistic thinking. It's a whole sort of subset of thinking, very logical, very point A to point B. And what Luke wanted to do was to write a gospel account where the facts were straight and where his argument was clear. How many of us appreciate that? Clear facts and a clear argument, right? Luke's gospel shares a lot of material with Matthew and Mark. They're called the synoptic gospels because they agree with one another. John's gospel agrees too, just in a different way, because John got to be John. So we're going to talk a lot about how Matthew, Mark, and Luke sort of line up with one another. One of the things Luke wanted to do is help the people listening to this gospel understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you were not from a Jewish background, like most of us, I would imagine, are, or during Luke's time, if you were just like, I don't even know about religion, like, I'm just kind of doing my thing, Messiah might not have been a term that you were really familiar with. But Luke uses it anyways, and I love how he uses it to kind of draw people into this understanding of who Jesus is. In Luke chapter 1, this is sort of the birth account, this is when Jesus is arriving on the scene, the Messiah is predicted to be someone who will reign over the house of Jacob forever, 
and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the first time Luke's gospel mentions the word kingdom. And it says a kingdom where there will be no end, a never-ending kingdom. So what does that kingdom look like? Well, very, very briefly, whenever we look at Jesus, we see the kingdom. If you're ever confused about what is the kingdom, what is this thing, I don't understand. Look at Jesus. Look at the way he treated other people. Look at the way he lived his life. Look at him as an intelligent person who is navigating a complex cultural situation. You will find what the kingdom looks like. We see this in the beginning of uh, our chapter today, Luke chapter 4. Jesus uh, has been born. He's grown up a little bit. We think he might be kind of a teenager, early adolescence in this story. And he goes into some very deep waters. He stands at the temple, a place that he would have known somewhat by being a Jew. And he stands before these teachers of the law, these very wise people who would have known the scriptures very well. And he reads something to them that's fascinating. This is in Luke chapter 4. So if you want to turn there with me, I invite you to do that. Luke chapter 4, I'll read verses 18 and 19 for us. This is Jesus standing in front of some very, very smart people, reading them the words of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I can't tell you how many times I've read that passage, and for the first time for me this week, I realized that passage describes the kingdom of God, the way God wants our world to look, the way his rule and reign is meant to be activated. I'll walk us through it. Think about this. In the kingdom, the Messiah and everybody who follows him, right, this king that's going to have an everlasting kingdom, it's never going to end, the people who follow him and him are going to do these things. They're going to bring good news to the poor, They're going to proclaim release to the captives. They're going to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. Let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's all there. This turning upside down of the way that the world was ordered. In this day, if you were poor, you were nothing. And our day isn't much different. If you were poor, you were nothing. And here, Jesus is reading from the scriptures, from the ancient witness, from his own tradition, and saying, you are going to go and bring good news to the poor. You are going to go take care of the poor. Guess who is on the hook for all the things that Jesus is describing in this passage? Us. Those of us who would belong to a local church. Later on in his ministry, in John's gospel, Jesus said that those who follow him will do even greater things than these. It's a fascinating passage to think about. What could people who aren't Jesus possibly do that could be even greater than the things that he said he came to do? And the thing that he's pointing to, I think, is starting when we live into the reality of the kingdom. When we start to proclaim good news to the poor and care about people who are in captivity. To not just look away from oppression, but try to step into it. When I was a student in college, a group of friends of mine and I would go on a mission trip during our spring break. And so we were all part of this church, and we would go with some high school kids, and we'd go down to Tijuana, Mexico. But we wouldn't go to the part of Tijuana that is sort of, you know, famous and sleazy tabloids. We would go to the hills of Tijuana, outside the city, which is a place of desperate poverty, really, really broken. Lots, just picture kind of dirty, sandy hills, far as the eye can see, covered with shacks. And that's where we would go. And we would set up at this orphanage and we would go out into the city and we would try to build these houses for people who were in need. This was through a nonprofit that our church worked with. And what I want to say about this is, is I didn't know it at the time, but stepping into this was stepping into the reality of the kingdom that Jesus is quoting 
from Isaiah. Bring good news to the poor. Bring freedom to the captives. How did we do that? We did that by basically building a bunch of tool sheds. These houses that we would build. We would come with construction materials. We would come with some plans. And we would build a 10 by 15 structure with a roof and a door and a couple of windows. And we would help families in the community step out of where they were living and step into this new place. And how are we breaking cycles? How are we setting captives free? First of all, if you live in poverty, you have no ability to keep things secure. You don't have a lock on your door. You don't have a place to keep your treasured possessions. You have no place to put your children's birth certificate, nothing like that. So what perpetuates poverty a lot of time is a lack of security. Well, each of these houses had a door. And there was a lock on that door. And at the end of our week of construction, we would give the key to the homeowner and say, welcome to your new home. And what we were saying to them was, you can start to keep things safe. You can keep your family safe at night. People aren't going to rob you when you have a lock on your door, when you can be safe. How are we helping people step out of poverty? One woman who uh, was a recipient of one of these houses, she decided that one of the ways she was going to decorate her new house, because she was so excited about it, was to start making curtains just little curtains that she could hang in the window of these homes. And she started to make curtains. She was a seamstress. And all of a sudden, her neighbors, who also received houses from this group that we worked with, they said, we love your curtains. Could you make us a curtain? And so she started making more curtains and more curtains. She was able to sell them for a little bit of money. Then she was able to hire someone to help her make curtains because the demand was so big. She started a business out of this tool shed that was helping to lift her family and other families out of poverty and break the cycle and help them really enjoy these homes that were given to them. Guys, that is the kingdom of God. And I stepped into it as a 19-year-old college student, and I had no idea that I was helping to build the kingdom. How about you? What have you been involved in? Maybe it's been a mission trip. Maybe it's been something else. But you have been able to do what Jesus was saying in this passage. You've been helping break a cycle of poverty, care for people who are experiencing oppression. You've been helping people step out of systems that people were never meant to be in. This is all so important to know at the top because the theme of the kingdom runs through everything Jesus does. It runs through all of his ministry, all of his proclamation. That's why it's so important when we pray the Lord's Prayer that we always touch on those words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what Jesus is asking us to do and to be a part of because the Messiah didn't just come to save people and take us to heaven. He came to give us a rescue mission to do here on earth. And we'll have an opportunity as we wrap up our sermon in a little while to think about what that could look like for each of us. So that's the context. That's the kingdom of God where God's rule and reign are unmistakable. The effective range of the will of God where what God wants done is done. It's not a place where there's... total removal of poverty yet, but it's where people are taking care of the poor and seeking justice and trying to step into these things courageously. Now, the next thing that this passage does for us is it sets up a contrast, a pair of them actually. So turn with me again to Luke 4, and I'm going to read verse 42 for us. We're skipping over a little bit. We're going to the passage that Alana read for us. Listen to verse 42. At daybreak, he, Jesus, departed, and he went into a deserted place, and the crowds were looking for him. And when they reached him, they wanted pizza. They wanted to prevent him from leaving them. This sets up two contrasts that I want to outline for us very briefly. Adrenaline and adoration. 
two things that we love and that Jesus is going to show us a different way around. First, adrenaline. Back in Mark's gospel, remember how Mark and Matthew and Luke all kind of tell the same story, different vantage points. Mark writes that Jesus would go off and pray by himself in the earliest hours of the day. He would intentionally step away from these moments where people were coming to him and saying, hey, we need you. Hey, we want to talk to you. Hey, you got to do this. Hey, you got to do that. He prioritizes time alone. And if you think about it in terms of opportunity cost, time alone isn't just like me time or me and Jesus time. You're saying no to something when you take time to go be alone. This is very hard when you're a parent and you have young kids. It is so tempting just to kind of stay in the mode, just keep rolling through. Okay, now I got to do breakfast. Now I got to get them dressed. Now I got to do this. You're saying no to something that you could be doing. And I get it. I get the tension here. The tension I want to illustrate here is that every one of us lives in a time when adrenaline is the ultimate drug. Every time you get an email, every time you get a text, every time somebody reaches out to you and pings you, there's a little bit of dopamine, a little bit of adrenaline that's firing around in your brain, and we love it. When we were in Colorado, my senior pastor got to take a sabbatical, and he told me one of the hardest things about going on sabbatical, taking a long break from work, was he missed the adrenaline. He missed people needing him. He missed the firing of the synapses that happens when people reach out to you. Every one of us lives in some kind of relationship to adrenaline right now because we're constantly in contact with one another. I went on a hike a couple of months ago with a good friend of mine, and he has a smartwatch, and I'm not picking on you if you have a smartwatch. Like, don't hear me say that. We're hiking along, and we're talking about our lives and our families, And he works for a nonprofit. They're in the middle of a big fundraising season. And so his phone is lighting up. His watch is lighting up. And he's going, man, like, I'm so glad I'm on this hike. I'm glad we're doing this together. But I wish I could just get away from work. Like, I feel like I really can't disconnect right now. And I turned to him and I said, what if you took your watch off for the next two hours? What if you just slipped it off, put it in your pocket? And he said, okay. So he took the watch off. All of us have an opportunity to take off our watches or to put away your phone or to turn off your computer screen. All of us love the attention at a level we have to be attentive to it, but we can't live off of it. That's like me trying to build my diet around donuts and queso. Like that's not going to work for very long. So this is the contrast. When Jesus is looking at something that all of us could say yes to, say yes to the adrenaline, he's saying no. He's saying, take off your watch, go be alone with me, spend time with me. How could you do that this week? Is there a practical step you could do? Maybe it means you just take off your watch this week. Or you take off your watch when you get home. When I get home, I try, I'm not good at this, but I try to put my phone in the drawer in my kitchen, and I just, I don't want to look at it. I just, it needs to stay there. When I uh, am finishing up a run, like I'm a runner, and so at the end of my run, I try to stop maybe a quarter mile or half mile from the finish, whether the finish is my house or my car or wherever I am, and spend that last quarter mile just walking and just listening to what God might be saying to me. I'm trying to create just a little bit more space and a little bit more time to be be present with the Father. And I'm saying no to the adrenaline of coming back in and trying to jump into whatever it is I was doing. What could you do this week to say no to adrenaline? The second thing, the second contrast is adoration. Mark's gospel illustrates this really, really well for us. I'll read it for us here. This is Mark 31, 1, or excuse me, 1, 36 through 37. Same account, different words. The crowd in Mark's gospel, he gives it a little bit more detail. He says, Simon and his companions, they were hunting for Jesus. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. 
What does it mean when someone says to you, everyone is searching for you? If you're a groom and you're at your wedding, you're in trouble. (laughs) Everyone is searching for you means you're a big deal. You're really important. We need you over here right now because only you can do this. Because only you can speak to this situation. We need you immediately. Have you ever had someone say that to you? And then show you that they just wanted to get your attention for something else? Have you ever had someone sort of treat you like you're a big deal only to find out that they had an ulterior motive? They wanted to try to sell you something. They wanted you to pay attention to this or that. They wanted to flatter you. What I love about what Jesus says in this moment is he doesn't take the bait of flattery. He's not intrigued by adoration. Walking around shaking hands and kissing babies is not what he's going to do. And the question we have to ask ourselves is why not? What, what's, what's so bad about going in and like saying hi to a few people, right? The reason he doesn't go back to the crowds in this moment is because he's crystal clear about his purpose. He is 100% clear about what he's supposed to be doing in that moment and really all throughout his ministry. And that's where we get back to verse 43. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what he was sent forth to do. That's what he is setting his sights on day after day. And he's saying no to the adoration. So all of us experience this, right? Am I going to react in a hurry to the stimulus? Am I going to keep the adrenaline going? Am I going to slow down? Am I going to listen? Am I going to think carefully and respond and not react? The disciples, they love the adrenaline. They're like, Jesus, keep the adrenaline going. We love the adoration. Why can't you have more crowds around us? But Jesus is showing them a different way, and that is the way of the kingdom. How could each of us take a step like what Jesus shows us in this passage this week? So here's what we've covered so far. We've covered context. We've covered the contrast between adrenaline and adoration. We've learned about the kingdom. Now I want to invite us to hear the rest of the passage as we think about our calling. So look again with me at Luke chapter 4. But he, Jesus, said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he continued, proclaiming the message in the synagogues of Judea. I want to highlight a, pass, or a phrase from here that's really, really interesting. In verse 43, Jesus says, I'm here to proclaim the good news. That phrase is actually just one word in the original Greek. It's evangelion, euangelion, which becomes really important in how we understand the kingdom. That one word, evangelion, comes up a ton in Luke's gospel. In Luke 2, chapter 10, when Jesus is born in a manger, the angel comes, you might remember this story, and says to, Jesus's family, or says to the shepherds, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. Good news of great joy. That's the evangelion. That's the thing that he has come to proclaim. It's declaring a reality that's better than what anyone could have imagined. When Jesus read from the scroll earlier, when he was reading the prophet Isaiah, bring good news to the poor, that's the evangelion. That's the joy. That's the thing that he cannot help proclaim, that he's so excited to proclaim. Throughout Luke's gospel, this word comes up again and again. And as I mentioned earlier, Luke's also the author of the book of Acts. And there's a description of the early church in Acts chapter 5 that I think is so important for us to hear as we try to step into our life together as a church at Bethany. This is Acts 5, 42. It's kind of a summary statement of where the church was at this time. And every day in the temple and at home, they, the church, did not cease to teach and proclaim evangelion, Jesus, as the Messiah. 
over and over and over again, evangelion, evangelion, evangelion. What does that mean for us? How do we carry this on? If it's in the book of Acts, my argument is that any church claiming to follow Jesus, claiming to follow the scriptures now, is sort of responsible for taking up that mantle as well. So how do we carry that on? A couple of suggestions. First suggestion is we need to really understand the kingdom. We need to get what the kingdom of God is about, and it takes time. The kingdom's really hard to fathom. Like, I took a couple of seminary classes on this, and it's still really hard. So come back. If you're not going to be here one Sunday, catch the podcast. Make sure you stay up to speed on what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom. The kingdom is the range of your effective will. And the more we get the kingdom, the more we want our kingdom to fit into God's kingdom, to submit to his, to become alive only as it exists under God's kingdom. The second thing I would suggest is the more that we know about the kingdom, the more we want other people to know about it. Uh, I just finished a biography of one of my heroes, a guy named Dallas Willard. And uh, the biographer went around to all the places where Dallas worked and where he did his ministry. And he went to this cafe in Los Angeles, not far from the college campus where Dallas taught. And he was sitting around. He was just kind of, he was there to sort of see if any of the regulars remembered Dallas, like if any of the waitresses had served him or that kind of thing. And he said there was this homeless guy who was a gentleman who was experiencing homelessness um, sitting by the front door. And he went over and talked to him just on a whim and said, hey, do you remember this man who used to come in here? His name is Dallas. And the man said, oh, yeah, I remember him. He bought me lunch 20 years ago. And I'll never forget that conversation. And so he sat down with this man, this author, and started to talk to him about it. And in their conversation, he starts to tell this man about the kingdom because that was one of Dallas Willard's biggest themes. The kingdom of God is available right now. It's present. It changes people's lives. And this man started to weep. And what he said to the author of this biography is, where was this knowledge of the kingdom when I left the church 25 years ago? Nobody taught me about this. Nobody told me about this. You guys, every one of us is connected to people like this man who are hungry for the knowledge of the kingdom, hungry for something more, hungry to know that their lives matter. I heard a survey this week that 80% of people who don't attend church would say yes to coming to church if one of us were to invite them. 80%. That may be a little bit lower in the Pacific Northwest, but I was really encouraged by that. And I was convicted because you know what I'm not good at? Even as your pastor, I'm not good at inviting people to church. I'm I'll just admit it. It is something that I need to get way, way better at. And that's encouraging to me that people would actually consider just coming, just check it out. Look, if you're not already a part of a church family, would you come check ours out? Would you come see what we're doing with kids? Would you come be a part of what we're doing in worship? It's awesome. I would love for us to take even more seriously this wonderful mission that we have had at Bethany Community Church of inviting people to God and to community and to wholeness. Because as we get the kingdom, we're going to want to tell people about it. Like Dallas Willard told that man about the kingdom, and it changed his life. What about us? Who could we be inviting into this place? The more we get the kingdom, the more we want to tell others about it. The final encouragement I want to offer is we need to identify how we answer the question of what is my kingdom? Where is my kingdom? Remember when I was swimming, I realized this is not my kingdom. I am not in charge here. Where are the places that we are trying to be in charge? And not that being in charge is bad, but how can we surrender those places to God and ask God to make these things work in his kingdom? 
There's a table set up at the back, and there's some post-it notes back there. What I want to invite you to do is go back during the final song or after worship and just write out this phrase, my kingdom is, and fill in that blank. You might say, if you're a student, my kingdom is this class that I'm in right now because I'm working so hard at it and I want it to go great and I just, want it, I just want it to be good. Having a kingdom is not bad, but surrendering that kingdom to God is what we need to be about. And I hope we'll write this down. My kingdom is my work. My kingdom is raising my kids to know the Lord. My kingdom is this. My kingdom is that. Write it down because if we can name it, we can surrender it. If we can't name it, good luck. Think about the places where you are working hard, where you're trying to accomplish something, where you are using your will to bring something about and go, okay, God, if I were to give this up to you, if I were to say you are actually in charge of this kingdom, use it for your purposes, what could that look like? With us, our kingdoms are always about ourselves and always about the ability to do work that we have. Jesus' kingdom is always about the Father. Jesus once said that his desire, his heart's cry, is to do the will of the one who sent him. That's his kingdom. And I would love for all of us to be able to courageously identify how each of our kingdoms can fit into the unbelievable goodness of the power of the kingdom of God. So stop by the back table. Go ahead and do that if you're willing as the next song comes up. You can do it uh, after we finish worship today. I'm going to invite Bree and Corey to come join me back up here. I would also encourage you, um, Maria Christina is here from our prayer team. Can you wave, Maria Christina? There, there she is in the back. She is here uh, to pray. So if any of you uh, would like to pray with someone over your kingdom, over the stuff that you're facing right now, over the challenges that you're experiencing in your life, she's available would love to pray with you uh, starting right after the sermon. Take one of those notes home. Write about your kingdom. Think about it. Pray about it. Offer it to God. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you that you are powerfully in charge of each of our lives. There is no place outside of your power and your care. We recognize that when we talk about your kingdom, we know it's here. We know you've brought it through Jesus, and yet we want to keep stepping in to what you're doing in your kingdom as we participate in the work of justice, as we go to picnics at Paradise Baptist Church and just seek to develop friendships beyond what we all would normally engage with. We thank you, God, that your kingdom is coming and your will is being done. And so with each of our little kingdoms, the range of our effective will, where we're trying to do stuff at work, where we're trying to raise our kids, whatever it is we're trying to do, would you take each of our kingdoms, unite them under your big kingdom, Help us experience powerfully in our hearts. You're moving us toward greater and greater understanding of how good your kingdom is and how much we belong there. As we rise to worship now, would you continue to drive home what you want to drive home for each of us? We ask all these things in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.